Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast, a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for information on our all-volunteer nonprofit, as well as for other podcast blogs and how you might help us out. Now, today I'm giving a concluding reflection on Nietzsche, with a particular emphasis on how a Christian might think about him and his thought. Bear with me as I sort of wander through his ideas, looking at what he gets right, what he gets wrong, and how he might learn from and respond to him. And I'm really going to focus on sort of the big ideas that he covers. If you have questions, comments, or requests, please email us at wondering at tactical faith. That's wondering with an A. Or tweet us at toward wisdom. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what we're doing, please rate us, share us with your friends, and so on. If you don't like what we're doing, you can skip rating us and just share us with your enemies. We have desires, and we have varying levels of power. The purpose of power is to allow us to fulfill our desires. Our desires, on the other hand, arise from deep within us, from our evolutionary development. As Richard Dawkins once wrote, DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Now, of course, we Christians disagree with those sentiments, but we haven't done a very good job wrestling with our desires and what they mean. We think to ourselves, we have good desires and we have bad desires. We need to do what we can not to act on our bad desires, but to focus primarily on our good desires. Now, our society, on the other hand, declares that far more of our desires are in fact good. And with our emphasis on individual happiness, pleasure, our terrible fear of discomfort, and of norms that might limit us, we have embraced a far far larger set of desires. And in fact, there are not desires that really make us bad, according to our culture. Rather, we are good, and desires come from some outside influence, causing us to want bad things. But it's not really our fault, except in cases where we refuse to recognize these desires as what they are, and instead pretend that they are something else. For example, we often hear various accusations. Let us say that you hold a view that marriage is an institution that should exist only between a man and a woman. And let us say further that you claim that you believe this because your religion tells you so. The response of our society is that you are in fact hateful or fearful, homophobia, which seems to mean an irrational fear of homosexuality or homosexuals. Now, while you, perhaps a conservative Christian, draw back from this, arguing that you are not fearful or hateful or bigoted, you are merely doing the best to follow the tenets of your religion as best you can. But but what is religion? And what are these beliefs and doctrines except a projection of more fundamental desires? You see, the view today is increasingly that we have our animal desires, that is, desires for food, sex, safety, really ultimately desires for power, the power to do what we want, possess what we want, go where we want, and so on. And we call this freedom, or being allowed to be myself, or whatever. And we claim our identity is found in such things. When we talk about religion, they hold, or you know, we tend to believe that this religion really is just an excuse for living out certain animal desires. Specifically, something like fear and hatred. Religion isn't fundamental to who we are. Our sexual desire, for example, is far closer to what we are. Our identity is more closely tied to sex than to religion. I mean, think about it. How much time do we spend with our religion, and how much time do we spend thinking or focusing or being sold goods through the use of sex? In fact, we tend to argue that 
we embrace religions because of other desires. If I accept a conservative religion, it is because I am a fearful or hateful person. And I like that this religion religion makes me feel good about being fearful and hateful. Of course, sometimes it's because we want to belong, st- uh, stay somewhere safe with our parents' religion, you might say. But then that religion nourishes our bad desires, and we thus use those hateful and fearful desires dressed in the garments of purported orthodoxy to maintain a sense of safety and belonging. And this is perhaps why the Christian response has been largely ineffective. We can convince really no one except maybe the choir to which we are preaching. We have struggled to control the culture and to control the politics of the nation. And this has all failed and has, I think, rather caused more of a backlash. Why? Because people have been saying for some time that the doctrines of Christianity, which declares itself to be a religion of love, is in fact about getting and maintaining power because we are hateful and fearful and so strongly desire power to protect ourselves. And we haven't given people much reason to think otherwise. Now, I'm not saying, though, that the world has been wrong about us. I I think they are wrong about Christianity, but I'm not entirely sure they are wrong about us. Now, Nietzsche began his book in the preface with the claim that we do not know ourselves because we have not been paying attention to ourselves. We Christians have such a long history of rich doctrines and ideas that came out of deep reflection on the human situation and on the meaning of the acts of God in history, from creation to the cross to the coming resurrection. In addition, we have felt we had largely won the culture and political war. Not that we won every battle, but for the most part, every major political leader, for example, had to at least pretend they were a Christian to get elected. And it was not merely our being lulled into a kind of complacency through the sense of power but also our attempts to make the gospel simple and attractive so we could convert more. No longer did the gospel have to wrestle with the darkest and most difficult ideas of the day. No longer was it a call to follow Christ into suffering, persecution, and death. After all, that was for a time when Christians were persecuted. Christians, when we run things, we just say, come and be happy. This complacency isn't just a problem for Christians, but perhaps for modern culture in general. Comfort and easy pleasure breeds a lack of self-awareness as well. And of course, there's far more similarity between modern Christianity and modern culture than we might think. Even the culture, culture we believe is directly opposed to Christianity today. Nietzsche saw this partly because he was not complacent. He was paying attention both to the way others acted and to his own desires. He tried to understand, rather than settling into our comfortable cliches and slogans and watered-down purported solutions to problems. And Nietzsche gives us then two gifts, you might say, in his book, and really elsewhere as well in his writings. He gives us an incisive look into our desires, and from that he gives us an acute awareness of the complex and terrible nature of those desires that lie beneath our most cherished morals. You might think that saying Nietzsche has given us these gifts means that I agree with him. And I do agree uh, with a lot of what he says, but I don't agree with all. In fact, there's something fundamental about his thinking that I strongly disagree with. So let's look at what I think he gets right and what he gets wrong. And in so doing, I'll try to show how Nietzsche could in fact be a great help to Christians. But first, one more quick note. There's a complication here that can make such a summary difficult and confusing. It would be easier to critique Nietzsche 
or to critique Christians or to critique modern culture. But instead, we're kind of critiquing all three, while also noting what, in particular, Nietzsche and the church get right. But bear with me, I think there's good stuff to be found here. Now, as I already mentioned, the church has had a bit of a problem, particularly in recent years, perhaps in recent centuries, in that we have not really paid much attention to human desire, except in terms of selecting which desires are good and which are bad. And this has, in turn, caused us to focus primarily on morality in terms of rules. Do this and don't do that. And if anyone were to push on why we should not do that and why we should do this, the answer is perhaps that 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 is wrong and this is right. But we might push further. We say, well, why should I avoid doing something that's bad or start doing something that is right or good? We ultimately have to fall back onto warning of punishment or promises of reward. Ultimately, we might say hell and heaven. But if you consider this for even a few moments, it creates a real problem. The problem is just one problem, but it kind of has two elements. It separates reward and punishment from good and evil. And it assigns some of our natural desires as good and some as bad. So let me repeat that. This, this problem, which is kind of one problem, but has two kind of faces to it. The first is that it separates reward and punishment from good and evil. It makes those distinct things that aren't really naturally related. And it assigns some of our natural desires as good and some as bad. But, you might respond, there are obviously some desires that are terrible and some that are good. I have a desire to help the neighbor on my right. And I have a desire for the neighbor on my left to die alone and in pain. Clearly, the first desire is good and the second is bad. Now, I agree. It is obvious that wishing death on a neighbor is bad, just as it is obvious that wanting to help a neighbor is good. But this is a shallow view of desire. It is assuming that desires are merely what they seem to be on the surface. But desires are complicated things. Often what we think we want, we don't really want, and it won't fulfill us anyway. We have experienced this and seen this in others countless times, but we have a hard time learning its lessons. Your, your desire to help your neighbor might simply be a sense of wanting to overcome a bit of shame that you have because that neighbor helped you once and you haven't had a chance to repay. This makes you uncomfortable. So you want to find some way to help that neighbor. In fact, if you look at yourself closely, you might find that you in fact wish that your neighbor would experience some calamity so that you could help. And that neighbor that you hate? Now, hate is surely an evil thing, but that hatred might arise from a sense of justice, a sense that something needs to be made right. The deeper desire that gives rise to your hate is perhaps the same desire that wishes that we could all be at peace and that we could love one another. But we could even dig deeper. That shame that makes you want to help your neighbor, uh, the neighbor that you uh, want to help rather than to, to have die, that might, arise, that might arise from a sense of human dignity or even of our being created in the image of God and the recognition that we do not want to be a burden to others. We want people, we want to help others. We want people to recognize us as, as being the kind of people who carry burdens rather than produce them. In addition, that sense of justice, which desires peace in the world, that causes you perhaps to hate your neighbor, that could be built upon a foundation of cowardice 
you want everyone to get along because you're too you you lack the courage or the strength to stand up for yourself and you don't want to experience any pain and on and on we can go digging ever deeper and questioning more and more but i don't want to suggest that we can go deeper back and forth between good and evil rather i think all of our desires are at their root desires for good even the most perverse and terrible of desires arises from what is at root a desire that was placed in us by god god is the creator of all that exists sin does not create it only twists and perverts what is good Yes, even the cannibal and the pedophile are acting out of desires that, if cleared of all the twisting and the nodding and the perversion that sin has tortured their desires into, we would find that at root, they ultimately wanted something good. But perhaps now they, they cannot even recognize the good that they originally wanted and that they ultimately really want. Christians, perhaps being confused by Gnostic-like thoughts, and confused by strange views of dualism and so forth, have tried to see parts of ourselves as bad, usually the body, and other parts as good, like our spirits or our souls or our minds. And while arguing about how this is a theological error would take us off on a rabbit trail, let us just say that it hasn't worked too well for us. The main reason is because it's false. Now, what Nietzsche realized was that our desires cannot be removed. They simply take on different shapes, different forms. If we are the type that want to go along to get along, that is, if we're like herd animals, we generally try to repackage our desires into forms that the people around us find acceptable. What do I mean? I mean, for example, spitefulness, jealousy, and hatred, they can take the form of being a concerned citizen, an activist, or seeking help in prayer for someone. Our desire for vengeance is nourished by thoughts of God's judgment on others. That is, we claim to care about justice, but really we just want vengeance. Our cowardice and simpering weakness we repackage as patience, humility, and kindness. This is what Nietzsche saw, and I think he's largely correct about most of us. The issue with our desires is that we can dream of one day having them removed, but that is a theological error and really an utterly unhelpful way to deal with evil desires. It simply does not work because our desires do not go away. Nietzsche recognized this about us. But Nietzsche was also wrong about human nature and the origin of life itself. Nietzsche believed that our origin was driven by materialistic evolution. And thus, our fundamental desires were simply the programming of evolution. At heart, every desire we have, then, arises from the drive of life to consume and reproduce and ultimately to exert power on the world around it, to leave a mark, to possess, and so on. Thus, even the desire to love our neighbor, Nietzsche says, is the desire to exert power, but in a safe way that won't provoke a negative response from that neighbor. Obviously, I think Nietzsche was wrong about this. According to Christianity, whether you believe in evolution or not, our origin is the triune God, who has been in loving relationship for eternity, such that 1 John declares that God is love. Our origin is therefore love, and at root we desire to love 
and be loved. Even the violence of genocides and the inhumanity of human traffickers arise from this root, this root that is a desire to love and be loved. A root whose stem and branches have been corrupted, twisted, and bent into perverse shapes and directions. This is why, by the way, such people can never be happy. Just recently, I read Frederick Douglass's narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. While he talks about the suffering of the slaves and the completely unjust nature of their plight, he also notes, interestingly, how being a slave owner had its own form of corruption and misery. He speaks particularly of a woman who had never owned slaves before. He was sent from a plantation that was, like most plantations, entirely unpleasant, abusive, and so on and so forth, to the home of this woman who, because this was her first slave, greeted him with warmth and kindness. She even started to teach him to read. Douglas wrote of her that she was filled with joy and empathy, an almost angelic human, whose happiness seemed to correlate directly with her love. But she was quickly reprimanded for treating him so well, particularly for teaching him to read by her more experienced husband, and she began to settle into being a slave owner. And Douglas watched her kindness deform into the mean dehumanization so characteristic of slave owners and their managers. But he also saw her happiness melt away, replaced by anger and bitterness. And he notes how the power that slave owners had over their slaves, the power of one human over another like this, destroyed the very soul and happiness and fulfillment of the slave owner. Their joy, too, was undermined. Why? Because we were not meant to have such domineering power over one another. We were not meant to treat others like objects in this way. Because we are meant to love. Rather than love of neighbor being dressing up the will of power, as Nietzsche claims, the will to power is a deformation of the desire for love. Let me repeat that. Rather than, as Nietzsche claims, the love of neighbor being a kind of dressing up in sheep's clothing of the wolf of the desire for power. Instead, the desire for power is a deformation of the desire for love. And in fact, I think the desire to be able to create out of love. Now, what Nietzsche is right about, though, is that if materialism is in fact true, that is, if there is no God, no good God, no loving God, And if the powers that science tells us drives the universe are in fact the origin of all things, including life, then morality must arise from the programming of blind, uncaring evolution. And in turn, all of our high-minded claims about being kind, caring for others, peace, love, and so on, these are all merely deceptions. What we want is power. And given that most of us are weak and passive, too fearful to act and take what we want, and we are too distracted, or more likely, too cowardly to face the truth about ourselves, we dress up our cowardice and weakness and shallow-mindedness as morality. The calls for world peace, for equality, for love, these are all cries of fear from the ignoble who are unwilling and unable to fight and too fearful to experience discomfort. We are all kind of like Bartleby the Scrivener, or similar such distasteful characters. 
but we wear the clothes of morality, even managing to stir up a sense of outrage when someone does something that is scary. Our desires at their root, though, cannot be eradicated. And while the church has been busy preaching that we should simply stop acting on the bad desires and try instead to act on the good ones, the world has been working to embrace those desires, even to the point of people establishing their identity in those desires or some particular desire. But both the world and the church in this case, I think, are wrong. Both we Christians who have openly or by implication taught that humans need to be cut down, living a life less full than the world by removing sections of desires, and the world who claims that simply embracing whatever desire happens to be present at the moment will lead you to happiness and fulfillment, if only culture and religion and morality would stop hampering us from being ourselves. Both are wrong. Nietzsche was intelligent enough to recognize not only that our desires are far more complex than they seem, often being far different at their root than they appear, but also that they can be fulfilled in various ways. Even held that the will to power, that power that drove, he thinks, everything from evolution to the great wars in history, is best fulfilled nowadays in self-overcoming, particularly in things like music and art, which seems far different from the killing, raping, and pillaging we picture when someone mentions the will to power. But Nietzsche, too, was wrong, but again, about a different issue. Nietzsche saw self-overcoming primarily as overcoming morality, going beyond good and evil, as well as at looking at hardships as opportunities for greatness. Even if society, say, might consider that you simply, that you simply having hardships is a sign of failure. The issue is not that you appear good and moral or successful in the eyes of any moral or cultural system. It is about overcoming what is hindering you ultimately from becoming what you are. That's how Nietzsche would say it. In a second, I'll say something about this becoming what you are. But what I think Nietzsche got wrong was that the desire to create art and beauty, to overcome what hinders us in becoming, and so on, The way that these are tied to evolutionary programming is tenuous and unclear. I can see roughly how he tried to tie these together, but it makes far more sense that we are not at root beings created solely by mechanistic processes driven blindly by physical laws. Rather, the reason that our highest achievements are measured in terms of the true, the good, and the beautiful, that is, learning, acts of love, and creation of beautiful things, is because our source is the one who is true, good, and beautiful. That seems to make far more sense than Nietzsche's view. Nietzsche, though, had another element right, something that it seems both Christians and the world get wrong. He saw that every time we utter the idea that I am what I am, either we are lying or we have submitted to our own weakness. And so I talked about becoming what you are. Well, the idea that you are and that you are ossified, static in the state that you are, is a lie or it is a submission to one's own weakness. He believed we are in the process of becoming. Becoming, as he says in one of his untimely meditations, something far above what we are now. Now, the world is in love with the idea that our identity is ossified. People proudly utter those words, I am who I am, 
to state that the world should accept them, even love them, support them, because who they claim to be is who they are, and they're not changing. But this is probably not true. The only unchanging human is a dead one, or one who has become stunted and insufferable. It surely is nothing to be proud of. We Christians, though, have not responded well to this. We bristle at the idea that people think that they are being progressive and enlightened when they declare, I am who I am. We have taught that they are, in fact, less than what they feel like. Sections need to be trimmed off. After all, their claim to be who they are is simply a claim that they have and will continue to act as they wish, and their desires will remain unchanged. But we Christians, as I've said, always want to lop away a bunch of those desires, those that we consider bad. And again, Nietzsche saw these desires as things to be transformed, sublimated, deepened, enriched, reformed into a rich piece of artwork. This requires training ourselves, perhaps even trimming off some element of our first nature. But the goal is always to produce ourselves as a piece of art that is clearly the product, he says, of a single taste. Why would he hold this position? as opposed to the Christian position or the modern culture position. The Christian position of just ripping off chunks and the modern culture position of just accepting whatever happens to be at the surface at the time. Well, because of two elements in his thinking. First, that we, as I've said, cannot rid ourselves of our desires. So that kind of gets rid of the Christian response. At least we can't get rid of our desires at their root we can probably get rid of the ones that are more on the surface, that are not the roots, but the branches, you might say. But secondly, he recognized that real overcoming means being active rather than passive. Now, you'll note how both the pride of modern culture and the supposed humility of contemporary Christianity, they both emphasize passivity as opposed to activity. Modern culture calls us to submit to our desires as they appear, not seeking to shape them according to this deeper taste or some sort of grand vision, but proudly declaring that we are simply our desires as they happen to show up on the surface. That's passive. Our desires run us. We Christians, we tremble at all the evil desires within us, and we pray for the day when those desires will be removed from us so that we don't need to wrestle with them anymore. And in the meantime, we simply try to stop, try to stop, just stop, stop doing bad things. And we find respite primarily in experiences of excess of passion directed usually toward religious or moral things. For example, we get angry about the degeneration of society or we get passionate during the music at church. But then we go back to our daily lives and suffer under our desires, wishing them away while wishing we could also act on them. Nietzsche saw this passivity as the mark of being part of the herd, of being weak, of being a slave, not necessarily to others, but to ourselves. He saw the strong, the ubermensch, as one who was active, and not primarily active on others, but primarily active on one's own desires. And this may seem strange because we act on our desires, that is, what motivation could there be other than our desires? But Nietzsche believed that we could we had the we had a desire that's deeper, a taste that's fundamental that would have us take our desires and transform them. 
that single taste manifests itself in that which we really are, or at least should be, in the process of becoming. If we draw a line, so to speak, as he says in his uh, Schopenhauer's educator, connecting all those moments in our lives in which we felt elevated, blessed, in which perhaps though we strained and worked hard, we lost that sense of time and hardship, then we might draw an arrow showing the trajectory from what we seem to be now to becoming what we really are. Of course, this requires getting past the surface of our desires, but it also requires that we stop depending on simple morality. We have to dig down into our desires. From a Christian perspective, we might say that we need to grow up, get past that point where we do what we're told to do so that we can get to heaven and get more jewels in our crown or avoid being frowned on by our fellow Christians or avoid going to hell or getting punished in some other way. These are childish. Our goal is not to get a bunch of rewards in heaven, nor is it to avoid pain in hell. Our goal is to become the kind of person that belongs in paradise, makes it, is a part of what makes it paradise, and to avoid being that person who fits right into hell and perhaps is part of what makes it hell. That is, we should see how the commands given by God are actually instruction, Torah, Instruction to help us learn how to love God and to love neighbor rather than a, than a means of getting rewards and avoiding punishment. If we draw together the commands toward love and in fact recognize that we have been created to love so that our desires are at root the desire to love and be loved, then we can act powerfully on our desires, bringing them into the shape of love. And not just, not just love as in being nice and polite which often doesn't arise out of love at all, but rather the love of God that created the world, the stars, the beauty of the flowers, the awesome majesty of the mountains, and the rich complexity of, of animals and humans. Love that brings good things into being. Active creativity, not passive politeness. And thus our call to love is not just about being kind or nice. It is a call for us to look within ourselves as well as around us and to shape ourselves, to shape our desires and our environment to form into activities, places, and relationships of love. To do that, each person needs to overcome the limitations that are constantly vying for control of us. To, to go beyond the simplistic morality that is often taught by Christians, as well as the shallowness and emptiness of society's honor of mindless desires. We, like Nietzsche suggests, have to go beyond, even beyond good and evil. He does not say below good and evil. He never suggests lowering ourselves into rejecting morality so that we can indulge our desires like a bunch of animals. He sees morality as a kind of ladder that you should use to climb, but never get stuck on. When Jesus says that all the law and the prophets are summed up in the two commands to love God and love our neighbor, he also seemed to be saying that we need to go beyond the law, beyond the way we normally think of good and evil. Almost as if, as if obsessing over the knowledge of good and evil is the very stuff of original sin. Obeying laws is what a passive and a weak person does. Disobeying laws, though, can be another form of weakness, a mere slavery to whatever desire happens to pop up at the time. Looking upon the laws to see where they can guide us and then shaping our desires so that, so that we might overcome that weakness that made the laws necessary in the first place 
Now that is the work of an active Christian. Nietzsche recognized that Christians were weak and that we used Christian teaching to support weakness, to support passivity, so that we can sit and wait for God to fix stuff. That is perhaps why he said there really was only one Christian, and he died on a cross. Now, Nietzsche had a keen eye and a relentless logic that led him to the conclusion that Christians, modern culture, and even academics and the honored scientists were all dishonest about their motives. And I think he's he's right for the most part. Perhaps our compassion for and honoring of victims is in reality a hatred of success, of vigor, and maybe even a hatred of life itself. Perhaps our desire for peace and love is really more a matter of our being cowards and weak. And perhaps our clamoring for individual rights and for everyone to be allowed to live as they please arises really from a semi-conscious awareness that we are slaves to our desires, as well as a sign that we are far too lacking in meaningful reflection to understand our desires. All that which we honor in our culture, in our religion, in our personal lives, in what dark pits might our most high-minded and self-congratulatory morality be rooted? Or rather, we know what dark pits, at least if there is no God. And, and not just any God, but a God who is eternally and most essentially a loving God, who creates out of love and draws us to himself with love. A God who is just God by virtue of being powerful won't cut it. If there's a central error to Nietzsche's perception of religion and morality, it is that he could not believe in a God who is truly, essentially loving. And if we are created by a being whose claim to divinity is merely through power, that is no better than being created by evolution. It's just all power. And all our relations to God, to the world, to one another, would merely be jockeying for power. All goodness truth and beauty would then just be different modalities of power and our hunger for power. So what do you think? Is Nietzsche right about morality, at least within an atheist perspective? Is he right about Christianity? And really more importantly, at least more importantly for the way I think about Nietzsche, is he right about you? Are we in fact merely pursuing power? Is this perhaps why our primary description of God is that God has power? And if this is the case, if all being is rooted in power, then even our loving relationship with God is merely a mask for a power relationship. And our submission to God is nothing more than recognizing that he has more power than us. And therefore, we need to leverage his power to get our desires fulfilled. It could be, on the other hand, that God is love. And that our relationship with him, and even God's power, merely arises out of his love. If that's the case, then Nietzsche is wrong. If God is merely power, then I'm afraid, or if that's God's essential property, then it may be that Nietzsche is right. And of course, Nietzsche had lots of stuff to say about modern culture that fits in pretty nicely too. But again, I'm not going to, I'm not really emphasizing that so much. Those are thoughts on Nietzsche. There's a lot more I could say um, about, about his ideas, about what is particularly uh, 
good about what he says and what's particularly bad about what he says. But I think what I've presented are maybe some of the more important ideas, the bigger ideas uh, that show where he got some things right, but ultimately got it wrong. So if you have comments about this, again, you can let us know on Twitter at Toward Wisdom, or you can email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an A. Again, we'd love to hear you. Now, next up, we're going to be talking about Wittgenstein. Uh, Wittgenstein is a thinker who is quite different from Nietzsche, but also has some pretty fascinating ideas that relate pretty closely to what we've talked about, at least some of what we talked about in Nietzsche's view of science, as well as his view of morality. Now, we'll be focusing on Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, a book that reflects its title well. It's written in such a way that almost guarantees that no one with any sense would actually read the blasted thing. But the point of the book is really good, and once you understand it, it's spectacular. But we're going to be taking a week off before we jump into Wittgenstein, and that will be led primarily by Joel. But for now, thanks for listening. And may you be on the way to becoming who you are.